Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, Episode 90. Your friends don't have to be ideologically aligned with you to be friends and to be helpful to you. So many people in this movement are looking to find people like them who farm like them. And Hubert and I's very best friends in farming do not farm like us at all. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. You're growing more than grass. You're growing a healthier ecosystem to help your cattle thrive in their environment. You're growing your livelihood by increasing your carrying capacity and reducing your operating costs. You're growing stronger communities and a legacy to last generations. The grazing management decisions you make today impact everything from the soil beneath your feet to the community all around you. That's why the Noble Research Institute created their Essentials of Regenerative Grazing course to teach ranchers like you easy-to-follow techniques to quickly assess your forage production and infrastructure capacity in order to begin grazing more efficiently. Together, they can help you grow not only a healthier operation, but a legacy that lasts. Learn more on their website at noble.org slash grazing. It's N-O-B-L-E dot org forward slash grazing. Be sure and listen in the upcoming events for grazing courses coming near you. On today's show, we welcome Suzanne Karaman. She is of Reverence Farms. And we talk about grass-based dairying today, including adding carbon to the soil, animal nutrition, and other topics. I know some of you are thinking grass-based dairy doesn't apply to me. Don't do that. This is a great episode with lots of information even if you are not milking cows. Before we get to Suzanne, 10 seconds about my farm. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about the website for the podcast. We have redesigned the Grazing Grass Podcast website. We want it to be a useful tool for you instead of a place to house the podcast. So I'd appreciate you taking a look at it and send me some feedback. Along those lines, we announced a few months ago about our Patreon. And to be honest, hadn't done anything with that. However, I have started doing stuff on it. So if you go to the website, grazinggrass.com, and click on support, you can go to our Patreon link there. And you can see what's happening over there. We're posting some updates. We're going to try and make it a useful tool. And it just helps us keep up what we're doing here. We'll have a little bit more information at the end of the podcast if you're interested. Let's talk to Suzanne. Suzanne, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited you're joining us today. Thanks, Cal. It's great to be here, and I appreciate you having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? We live in farm in the Piedmont of North Carolina. That's the central part 
of North Carolina between the mountains and the sea. It's rolling hills and primarily clay soils. I farm uh, with my family and my husband, Hubert. Um, Hubert is an organic dairy vet. I met him at Acres USA concert um, conference in 2015. I sat in the front row. Um, I was a professional admirer of his, and I had no intention on it being a romantic encounter. Um, but we were married four and a half months later. Oh. He kind of married into this operation. At the time, we had about 20 or so, 25 cows, the most, maybe less. And uh, we're now milking, this year we'll be milking close to 80. Uh, oh. We have jerseys. And they are all, exception, with the exception of one of our, our dear cows named Pocahontas, they are all A2-2. And they are all 100% grass-fed. Um, and we graze with multiple paddock moves a day. Um, we milk once a day. And we share the calves with the cows, uh, the cows with the calves rather. So um, we're a very unique dairy. I don't know of another dairy in the States at our scale that does what we do, which is that we raise all 80 calves on their own mothers, including the bull calves. So it's a little bit a uh, cow-calf operation in the beef world except we're a dairy, and we separate the calves off at night, and we milk the moms in the morning, and then the moms get their calves back um, for a period of the day. The older calves get their moms for less time. Um, because we're 100% grass-fed and we don't feed grain, it means that we really need to feed those animals milk for a very good percentage of their young lives. So the bull calves are on their mothers until five to six and a half months, really five and a half to six months, six months or so. And the heifers are on their moms for seven plus months. Um, and there's lots of different ways that we modulate the milk flow to the calves with timing of separation. And um, and we wean in a pretty interesting way as well. Um, but our whole goal is to have a compassionate dairy. We believe that dairy cows are mothers too. And one of the consumer's biggest problems with dairy is understandably that a, that a mammal is separate from her own young. We don't think that milk cows were made by God for our convenience. They make milk for their calf. Otherwise, they wouldn't need a calf to make milk. And that's, in the dairy world, honestly treated as a major inconvenience. But there's these, these, especially these bull calves. Like, what are we, what are we to do with them? And as a as a mother myself, I never really could wrap my head around that. I couldn't understand how um, we I was supposed to take this baby from its mom. So we've developed systems to make that work. So our farm is very complex, and uh, grazing with that many animals and that many small animals is complex, um, especially because we have to go back to the barn every day. Um, so we can talk about that more um and a little bit like kind of how we've grown it. And we did everything until just this year with polywire, single strand polywire fences, everything, including our lanes back to the barn, which was super challenging at times. We have other livestock as well. We're a diversified operation and we direct market. We have, a, there's a lot going on. There, There's so much you said there that, that I, I've looked at your website. So I've seen some of the stuff that you're doing there. But I didn't realize you all were milking 80 cows because, like you said, for, for grass-fed, you usually don't have that kind of numbers. 
Um, the calf sharing, that's really interesting. We had a guest on that's doing calf sharing, but he's not doing it to the extent you are because you're keeping them on there till basically they were a beef cow when you would wean them five or six months or seven or eight for a heifer. So that's very interesting. But before we dive into all that, what made you interested in grass-fed dairy? Well, a lot of people tried to talk me into having beef cows. Um, that was pretty much like a universal refrain when I started farming. I've been farming for about 15 years. It's easy for me to remember how long I've been farming because <laughs> yeah. I started farming at the exact same age as my daughter was born. Um, so I was pregnant with her when I got my first milk cow. And really what made me want to do dairy is I wanted the milk myself. I wasn't interested in being a farmer. I was just an eater. And the, what I wanted wasn't available. There was no eggs in my area that came from chickens that had access to the outdoors, grazed fresh grass, and also had an organic grain. And everybody wanted to talk about how, oh, we supplement our chickens with non-GMO. And I was like, chickens aren't supplemented. Ruminants are supplemented with grain. But chickens or pigs are not supplemented with grain. That drives me bonkers when people say that. I think it's deceptive marketing, and I just wish people would oh, stop. Yeah. Chickens and pigs eat grain for the most part. And I couldn't deal with the fact that they were eating just... In Amiri at the time, there wasn't even non-GMO feed. It was just whatever came out of the local feed store, which was pretty much the same thing that chickens and pigs were eating in the factories. And I didn't think grass was a sufficient tonic to deal with those problems. And even non-GMO to me has a whole bunch of problems because GMOs came about for a reason. I'm not in support of them. But they came about because 2,4-D is no joke. You know, like we already had three-legged frogs before GMOs. Like what came before GMOs was also a problem. And, and so I really wanted eggs that I felt good about. And I really wanted milk from a cow that ate grass. And I had no idea how complicated that journey was. And I, I see so many people now Joel Salatin wrote a book, of course, called Homestead Tsunami, and he's right. It's a tsunami. There is like thousands of people getting milk cows, and it makes me shudder because <clears throat> I know how much I didn't know then and how much oh, suffering yeah. for myself and the animals because I didn't, you know, I was dogmatic and believed, well, if she's eating grass, that's all she needs. Well, it's not. Um, but those, why I'm a farmer is because I was a homesteader and fell in love with an idea. And the idea was that every day that I grazed this cow, I had a single milk cow, her name was Greeley, and I had her calf named Gracie. And I moved them around my nine-acre homestead, of which only probably two or three acres was open. And I moved them with portable electric fencing. I had goats and sheep before them and at the same time then as I had these cows. And I moved them around, and I couldn't believe what was possible when you moved animals and you let the grass rest because I hadn't yet seen it for myself. It was an idea I fell in love with. I fell in love with this idea that we could trap carbon from the air that didn't belong and that belonged in the ground. We could put it in the ground. When it rained, it would absorb the water. When it didn't rain, it would release the water. That the creeks, theoretically, if we all did this, would run clear again. And oh, that yeah. humans... And that humans would no longer be a scourge on the earth. I was raised in the 70s and the 80s 
And my mom was a very early environmentalist before that was cool. Like it was not cool when I was growing up that my mom was composting, I promise you. And nobody recycled and we recycled. And um, I just remember growing up with this idea that, that humans just did bad things, that we were just ugly people and we just made the world ugly. And the only thing that we could hope for is that we could fence out our national parks and pick up the trash and not leave a trail. And that there was some places on the earth would be beautiful still. But when I got this cow and I started moving her around and I started reading the Stockman Grass Farmer and I started reading about these stories of people transforming land with cattle, I was just totally transfixed. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that as a steward that I could actually make the land better. Like I could cry just talking about it right now because it still moves me very greatly because we're called to be stewards. We were created in a garden and we were put here to take care of a beautiful creation. And so dairy cows to me represent the ultimate part of that intimate relationship because, you know, you could try to milk your beef cow and you may live. You might not. Um, you might have a face at the end. You might not. <laughs> yeah. um, but this is an animal who's structurally similar on the inside as a beef cow. But she has a mind to share with us because she's been bred for it. And I just think that's amazing that she has this substance that's so pure and so beautiful that's for her own baby. And she's willing to share it with us. And we are well from it, not only by drinking it, but to me, what I was after in the beginning was raw milk. But what I realized is that dairy is so much more than raw milk. It's it's about the way from the cheese making process that then you have a byproduct for your garden or your pastures or your chickens or your pigs. You have um, everything left over from the cow is is important for, for the homestead or the farm. She can make a garden fertile while also feeding your family. Like start is just like think about that for a second. It's really amazing to think about that for a second, that she can actually, she just gives and gives and gives. And 10 months a year, she's pregnant, 10 or nine and a half, 10 months a year, she's lactating. And she never has a break. She's always either pregnant or lactating or eight months a year, she's pregnant and lactating. So when people are thinking that they can just put this grass out back in their backyard and that that's gonna have enough for her, I think they have another thing coming. But still, this miraculous animal turns this substance that covers two-thirds of the world's landmass, where we cannot grow broccoli, we cannot grow tomatoes, because it's either too rocky, too steep, too infertile, or too far from a diesel station. And so we have this substance that grows by God's grace, the fact that it rains, and it covers the world. And we have these animals we can partner with to make those that substance into and we can have a relationship with them in the process and the process learn something about ourselves. To me, it's just a totally divine calling. And I, I love every every moment that I spend with those cats. Wonderful. They, they are um, amazing creatures in what they can do. One thing you mentioned there was you were after raw milk. Um, why did you go with cattle versus sheep or goats? Because I didn't like goat milk. Yeah. I tried. I really did. Um, yeah. And I think goat milk can be done a lot better than most people do it. Um, I think it can not be goaty. Yeah. But um, 
grain is an interesting substance because it's I advocate a lot of people feed it. I am not a purist about grain. I think a lot of ruminants need to eat grain because the grass that people have is not sufficient. And I don't think that you can create a medicinal food by starving an animal. And I see way too right. many starving lactating animals, way too many. It makes me really sad. Oh, yeah. Um, that all being said, grain does change the nutrient profile, of course, and it also changes the flavor profile. And I think a lot of the reason why I didn't like goat milk was because of the grain one because corn and soy particularly soybean meal has an aftertaste it's kind of metallic and the best way i can describe it is kind of mealy like i can feel when i eat pork from an animal or eat an egg or chicken from an animal that ate soybean meal i can always feel it in my mouth it's like i don't know how to describe it and I think that came through the goat milk. Um, and I think grain, in my experience with goats and sheep, makes their meat more goaty and sheepy. Oh, yeah. I don't know how else to describe that. And I yeah. people are surprised all the time that we eat intact Jersey bulls. We eat them all the time. And people are like, doesn't that taste terrible? And I said, no, because they're grass fed. And I think had they had all that testosterone running through them and they eat grain, I think it's a problem. So to get to oh, a long yeah. story short, I think that when I was eating raw goat milk from a raw goat dairy, I think the presence of the bucks combined with the presence of the grain just made a flavor that I didn't love. If I was to milk a goat now, I think I could do it in a way that I like to do it. But I just wanted to drink cow's milk. And I will say, and Hubert has been on a lot of dairy farms in his professional life, our milk is really, really good. And his his comment is always, this is the sweetest milk I've ever had. I'm oh, convinced yeah. that it's because the cows are loved. In addition to their diet, in addition to their balanced diet, they're one of my friends that I think your cows are emotionally happy. And I think you can taste that. So I just wanted to drink cow's milk. Yeah, which is a valid reason. And you bring up there about um, just your cows are emotionally happy. You know, if you're stressing your animals out, that's going to make a difference. So the way you treat them is going to make a difference in the end. As for goat's milk, um, I like goat's milk okay, but I've always told my wife, because I've talked about having milk goats different times, because I love, I, don't, I just love dairy. And um, yeah. But I've told her, if I get milk goats, there will not be a buck here. I will have to AI, AI the does. Um, yeah. And I and I I actually, crazy enough, have all the stuff and gone to school to do it. I just have not. Oh, to AI. Yeah, to AI goats and sheep or goats, not sheep. Um, and then um, on sheep's milk, we went. It's been a number of years ago. We went to a sheep dairy, and um, we took a cheese class there, which was a lot of fun. But cheese milk is is just, it's totally different than goat's milk and and cow's milk it's just interesting but going on that tangent a little bit more talking about the soybean meal and the taste grain gives milk well the milk the raw milk on your farm is so much different than the milk in a store you know when they when they first started bottling milk outside the cardboard boxes and they had those lights on it it affects the flavor of it and they were they recommended to to grocery stores to put a sleeve over it so it shedded some of the 
certain light, but no one wanted to because it didn't make the milk look as attractive. But I tell people all the time, raw milk, store-bought milk tastes totally different. And I'm sure going that next step to grass-fed milk makes a difference. It does as long as the grass has sufficient energy. If well, it doesn't, yeah, it yeah. makes the milk taste very grassy and, and people don't like it. And it also raises somatic cell counts. And that's why I tell people, if you don't have sufficient energy in your, in your grass for the cow to stay in good condition, I mean, shiny in good condition, um, then they really need to eat grain or they need to eat molasses or something. Now, just going on that for just a second, do you use the BRICS test to, to see the strength of your grass? <clears throat> and I say it that Sometimes. way because I have not used it and I'm not very familiar with it. So I'm not. It measures the sugar in the grass, if I'm correct? That's correct. It's really measuring density, and, and sugar shows up as density. Oh, um, okay. And so we definitely do use that tool. I'm not going to tell you we use it every day, or if it doesn't reach a certain bricks level, we don't turn the cows out on it. We don't really have that luxury. We have to feed what we have. Um, we have a lot of mouths. Um, oh, yeah. We also, we also feed a fair amount of hay, and... That is kind of anathema to a lot of commercial grass operations because, you know, you spend hay money on hay. It just cuts directly out of your bottom line. Um, but there's a couple of reasons why we feed hay. One, because we started on a farm that had no topsoil. I'm not joking. Like it had point zero point five percent organic matter. We've taken oh, wow. it from th we've taken it from that to five percent organic matter in five years. Um, so I'm pretty proud of that. But oh, yeah. a huge be. amount of that came from applying carbon to the soil, some of which came in the form of hay. Um, cows, dairy cows eating hay, um, at least for part of their diet, is very good because of the long stem chew factor. So they tend to select for really lush grass. Um, and it's really good for them to have that long stem fiber and to chew. And the more they chew, the more butter fat they make and the more it slows down their digestion and they just sort of absorb the nutrients better. Um, so we feed a fair amount of hay, um, and we also have more animals, frankly, than our, our current pasture base can support. But the, the reality there is that you, with dairy, you have so many fixed costs. You have the barn, you have the milking parlor, you have the cost of flipping on the machines in the morning and have somebody oh, yeah. there to flip on the machines. So all of that costs a lot of money. If you're milk, and it doesn't really cost more money if you're milking 60 cows versus milking 20 cows. And you have to pay yourself back for that significant amount of infrastructure to build. To, with a grass-fed beef operation, you don't really need a barn in all right. places. But in dairy, you really do. Hmm. And you really do need a milking parlor. And, um, and you need concrete and stainless steel and pipes and glass and all the, you know, there's just stuff. And, um, and so in order for us to have a market for our milk, we needed to produce a certain amount of milk per day. Otherwise you oh, don't yeah. have anybody who's willing to pick you up. Um, and we've always sold our milk directly or locally. So we used to have a raw pet milk business and now we sell all our milk to Chapel Hill Creamery, which we're in the process of acquiring. It's a local creamery. And that creamery just the farm kind of only works with a certain amount of volume. So you have to pay the people to be there. You have to pay the power oh, yeah. bill. You have to pay the building. So you can't run like, you know, 
a little amount of milk through a facility like that. That just kind of facility only pencils and keeps itself above water if it has volume. And because we calf share and because we're grass fed and those two things are important to us, um, it means we don't produce a ton of milk per cow. So we need more cows to produce uh, the same volume of milk as someone might get from taking the calves from the cows and feeding them grain. It, uh, quite a bit more cows. Oh, yeah. Um, in the long term, what's really amazing, though, to me is that in the last three years, we have fed precipitously less hay every year, and we are grazing and feeding precipitously more cows in that time. So our cow oh, numbers have yeah. are, are climbing steadily, and our hay numbers are going down steadily. And I credit that with, with excellent grass management, um, creative grass management. We can talk a little bit because I break a lot of grazing rules and also just applying massive amounts of carbon to the soil. Um, so we use equipment to do that and we get tree mulch and, um, and all sorts of things. But we buy a lot of straw and we compost a lot of straw. We roll out a lot of straw. Um, we're pretty much always applying thick layers of carbon to one pasture or another and then oh, yes. letting it rest. Yeah, and we'll come back to more on that in just a little bit. Now, one thing, I'm going to ask an obvious question. <clears throat> At least it seems obvious to me now, but I wrote it down earlier. So you guys are not uh, seasonal. You're milking year-round. That round. is correct. That is, um, And that's very different than a lot of pasture dairies. But they're selling to a truck. They're selling to a truck like, say, Organic Valley or Maple Hill. And those other dairies in their pool are balancing them. So, in, right. you know, let's just say in Vermont, they're seasonal, but they're getting, that means Organic Valley is getting milk from the southeast in the winter. And that's why Organic Valley pays more for winter milk because people in North Carolina and South Carolina are making up that milk volume. But when, you, when you're selling milk to a, a small creamery, you know, we're not pulling from five farms even. We're pulling from two. Oh, yeah. Um, so we're seasonal in the sense that, like, at the moment, I'm not breeding cows because they would be calving in August. Oh, yeah. I am I am breeding heifers, though, and we can talk about why I choose to breed heifers to calve in August. Um, it took me many years to come to that conclusion. I didn't want to do it, um, but now it makes the most sense to me. So that's what we do. But we're not, except some maybe hard-to-breed cows that are going to be bred outside of a window, um, we're not breeding most of the milk herd right now, even though they're cycling. We'll breed them to Kevin September, October, November. A little bit, um, we calf very sparsely in December, January. Um, a little bit more in February, a little bit more in March. We calf a lot in April, a lot in, um, and quite a bit in June. Um, oh, yeah. And that, that's because in our climate, we still are grazing some pretty decent grass in June. Um, and also, it's just easy to get the cows pregnant to have. Um, mm -hmm. And we also need the milk for mozzarella in the summer because when people, um, because people are so out of touch with food and how it's produced that they want to buy things when they want to buy them, not necessarily <laughs> yes. when the cow wants to make them. So everyone wants to buy mozzarella in July and August because that's when the tomatoes are there. Well, that's not really when a cow wants to make milk, um, but that's what the market wants. 
Right, yeah. Now, one thing in talking about that, and, and you mentioned this just a little bit, you have a few more calving in March, April, May, June, or April That's when and most May. of it is, yeah. Yeah, and then you have, so do you have like majority calving in the springtime or a small majority? And a small majority, and I just said that, you can't have two majorities. Anyway, let's go with this. Um, in the fall. I hear what you're saying. And then, then the time between those, you still have a few more um, coming into production, but not as many as those peak times. Correct. It's like a trickle. And, yes. you know, we might have like a calf or two in July, calf mm -hmm. or two in August. Even the first two mm -hmm. weeks of September are pretty dastardly hot in North Carolina. And I oh, try yes. not to calf then. Um, yeah. But we, yeah, the vast majority of our cows are spring fall seasonal with a little bit more in the spring it used to be more spring than fall um it used to be more like two-thirds one-third two-thirds oh, yes. spring one-third fall but with the creamery's need for milk year-round um and really to lighten our workload um because we capped i think we had 40 calves last april that's a lot to deal with on a small farm um, it's just a lot of animals, fresh animals. It's a lot of baby calves. And so it didn't, I didn't do this on purpose, but we have a lot of older animals in the herd right now. And some of them I wanted to give a little bit longer of a lactation to and a little bit longer of a dry period to like give them a little break. I mean, some of these cows are 12, 13, 14 years old. Oh, yes. Um, and, and so some of them calved in the spring and they're not going to calf until next fall. And so oh, that okay. combined with some heifers is going to, I wouldn't say we're going to be 50-50, but it's going to be pretty close between spring and fall in 2024. And while we're on the topic, you, you mentioned about um, breeding some heifers to Kevin during the summer. Why is that? That is because my attempts at seasonality with the heifers failed too many times. Oh. So here's what I mean by that. Um, let's just say a heifer is born in May of 2023. She will be a year old in May of 2024. If I breed her a year old, that's too young. If I breed her at 15 months, then she calves. Let's see if I can do this math this quickly. June, July, August. That means she would, ideally, if I bred her at 15 months, she would calve as a two-year-old. Yes, right. But that doesn't always work out so well because mm -hmm. she might not be ready to calf then like a two-year-old to is when the industry would calf a dairy mm. cow for the first time but that's on a ton of corn silage and grain like very high octane oh, yeah. rations and they're growing that baby and they're growing themselves on a grass system she is going to grow more slowly and it's honestly those two-year-olds when they come into lactation as two-year-olds i think they always look skinny a little mm. runty they have trouble breeding back. Um, and I really would prefer that they calve in at like two and a half. Well, but oh, now yeah. we get we now we get into the point they're gonna calve in July. Right. So yeah. that's kind of what we do. And we used to have this philosophy that, well, we'll just save them and we'll calve them in the fall and they'll calve in at like two and three quarters. Well, that works great if you can do it, but 
what doesn't work great is a fat heifer, particularly a fat Jersey heifer, does not breed. And so we found ourselves with some fat heifers that wouldn't breed because we waited to try to get them in that fall window because they were going to be too small in the spring. Oh, and yeah. I've stopped. I've just stopped messing around with it. I've just decided that with the heifers, I'm going to breed them when they physiologically look right. There's just people ask when we breed our heifers and is there a hard window? No, I just can tell. Like they just have a look about them. They're starting to look a little rounder. Um, they're getting approaching their you know, closer to their full size, not full size, Hell but yeah. closer. And and I've only learned that by trial and error. So now I'm very content to calf heifers in July and August um, because it's when they are physiologically, I think, the most primed to do so. And I don't think it's as hard on them as a 12-year-old cow it would be to calf in August. When they're yeah. like these spring and heifers and they're two, two and a half years old, I just don't think it's that I don't think it's as stressful for them. And so it's also really nice for us to get that milk at that time of year because that's when all the cows are like, dang, it's hot out here and we don't want to eat. And so to have a couple, that's yes. why we've started calving year round a little bit. It's just to have that little bit of fresh milk. In a, in a herd of our size, a couple of cows calving makes a difference in the milk tank. Um, and it's nice to have a little bit more milk at that time of year. Um, and the other nice thing about half calving in heifers at that time is we're not calving in cows and we can spend a little bit more time with them in the parlor because some of them take forever to learn that process and to not be freaked out by it. Although we've started more and more letting our, our young calves, we bring our young calves in the parlor now in order to start them off at night from their moms. And we just did that because it's a small farm and that was the space we had. And so we just used the parlor and then shoved them in the box stalls. But now it's great because this group of heifers that's going to calve next year all know they're none of them are afraid of the parlor they've all walked up on the platform they've all oh, been through yes. those head gates and so it was an accidental training program but i'm elated about it one thing just a little tangent on that um just the working facilities or your handling pins for beef cattle i've started just anytime they're up by the barn i send my beef cows through it and that means it's so wise are going through it when they're young um, that also means their first exposure to going through it is not a painful or traumatizing experience at all and it just makes everything flow so much better when I need to do something um, so That's I can see true. how that would help a lot because you know I grew up on a conventional dairy and those two year olds require a lot of time and they don't like the barn uh, we always started a month, six weeks before they calved, just training them to the parlor. And then that was ideal. And you know on a farm, you have this ideal that you're trying to hit. And right. in good years, we did that. But there's times happen, we've got a heifer that calved that hadn't been through the barn, and that meant she got a crash course. And yeah, and that, that always took so much more time. Of course, it does. I'll be, I'll be honest, growing up on a conventional dairy and... The way we handled cows um, growing up, I'd handle them so much different now. Uh, my mm. my understanding, my my the way I handle cows is just so much different than we did as a kid. Of course, it's just a, a mindset that's changed over time. Now, Absolutely. I would assume with your two-year-olds, 
getting a little bit more time so they're a little bit much more mature when they calve that first time it reduces some of the breeding back issues you have of a first calf heifer it definitely does yeah yeah they're just in better body condition and they're just going into their lactation stronger and we end up with the first calf heifers if for whatever reason i decide to have them calf at two years old they will always get a six-month dry period oh, or yes. at least a four-month dry. I mean, a much longer dry period than a dairy cow would get. Um, and that's one thing that my totally seasonal friends cannot do. They don't have the flexibility. You know, so they're right. calving in these heifers at two years old. And if that heifer doesn't <laughs> breed back and calve in and again at three, she's out of the herd. And sometimes they're booting some really nice animals, honestly. I mean, I understand why they do it. But... Right. Um, your cost of raising a heifer is so much. It seems to me the, the the marginal extra amount of time you're going to have to give that animal to make that animal really shine is not that much compared to all that you already have in her. Right. And I, I can get that. I also understand why they're doing it um, from a a beef perspective. You know, if they don't breed back, we want to keep that calving window ni- or nice and short. And I know with um, my dad's herd, we always had a few straggler cows just because they were good cows, but they just didn't breed back. And typically, to be honest, they didn't breed back quickly on that first lactation. And then that that throws them out of sync the rest of their life. And we just dealt with it here. But a lot of people are like that calving window. If they don't make it, they don't make it. But I... I can fully understand giving them a chance. That two-year-old, that's a lot they're doing. It is, and especially <clears throat> it's a lot they're doing without grain or, oh yeah, yeah, you know, corn silage. And the other thing is that their primary goal in life is to produce milk for us. And although we run them kind of like a beef herd in the sense that they raise their own calves and we, we harvest a lot of beef out of our herd as a result from that, um, it's not as strict in that way. That's... Mm-hmm. That's part of the relational part I like about dairying, actually. On your your dairying, you, you mentioned um, quite a few times your grass-based, but you will provide energy in another form if the grass doesn't have enough. How do you do that? We don't do that anymore because oh, okay. we, we are really strictly a grass herd, but I recommend other people do. If you oats, uh, molasses, um, Back in the day, when I used to have a few cows, I would use alfalfa pellets or cubes and flaxseed oil. I bought a drum, like a 55-gallon drum of flaxseed oil. Obviously, that was very pricey even back then. But they just need the energy. And so I was pretty dogmatic about not using grain. I think Mm -hmm. had I to do it all over again, I would have just fed them some low-octane grain like oats and then moved away from it over time. Oats are a really excellent cow food because they're slow to digest they're high in fiber it's not like feeding corn there's a whole different world feeding oats than feeding corn um uh beet pulp citrus pulp both are really excellent feed choices because again they're high in fiber so they're that's a slow release energy we used to feed a lot of molasses Uh, we would put it on the bales of hay um, and we fed molasses chips through the head gates as a way of um as really a management tool, but it was also an energy supplement. We don't use them like that anymore. 
there's certain animals, um, older animals that we're very fond of or might have gotten a little thin or a heifer who needs some extra help will sometimes feed chaff hay. Um, oh, yeah. Which I really, really like that product a lot. I've seen a lot of animals turn around on it, um, animals that were too skinny or malnourished. It's a probiotic feed. It's all forage. So it's an enceled alfalfa. And I don't know how they do this, but they make it so that it's safe for horses in general. In general, enceled feed is not safe for horses. It can give them um, botulism like real quick. Oh, but, yes. But chaff hay, I guess they test for it, um, but it's it's safe for horses. But we use that if we need to have extra energy. And I would say the only time we use that consistently in our herd is we will use it on the bull calves when we wean them. Because I don't really think, unless you have absolutely outstanding forage, I mean, you know, stands of beautifully perfect green grass that's like just at the right energy and all that. I don't think you can harvest a dairy animal. Sorry, I don't think you can wean a dairy animal five and a half months old or six months old and put them straight on forage unless it's like amazing forage. And so we use um, chaff hay for the bull calves to transition from their mother's milk to being in the bull herd. Oh, yeah. They'll get that for a couple of months. And they don't get a ton of it, but it's just enough to kind just... of keep them in a good way. So just let me paraphrase this make sure i understand make sure so in the past you have done some molasses and some did some things for for energy but now you're relying just upon your grass that's correct but our hay is pretty nice hay that's that's pretty impressive well thank you i mean i i hope you would think so if you saw our cows i would say 85 percent of our cows are in a condition i would be proud to show you i would say five percent of our cows are in a condition i would not be proud to show you yeah. Um, they're just a stage of their lactation. They're thinner and they're older. I mean, one of those cows is 14 years old and she breeds back every year. She's an awesome cow, but she gets this point in her lactation every year that she looks a little rough and then she'll start coming back or around and look okay again. And I would say 10% of our cows are like, they're not in terrible condition, but I wouldn't, I mean, they don't look, I'm not going to take a picture of them and, and show you that this is exactly what I want a cow to look like at all times. Right. Um, but yeah, we're able to do that because of the forage being excellent and because I break some grazing rules, which I'm happy to explain. But just let me just let me be clear for folks, though, that okay. the, what they're eating when they're eating 100% forage is individually wrapped marshmallows of, of small grain forage. So they're eating wheat lidge and millet oh, lidge, yes. if that's a word. And they're not eating perennial grasses. They are not eating fescue. They're not even eating end of right free fescue. They're not eating like whatever grows on the back 40 that your neighbor bailed and calls it organic because he didn't <laughs> spray it. Like that is not dairy cow food. I cannot yes. emphasize that enough. None of those things are dairy cow food. If you're feeding those things because that's all you had, I really hope for your sake and that sake of that animal that you're feeding energy and protein, particularly energy. Um, so just... I just want to be clear, like what kind of stuff we're feeding that we're oh, able yeah. to do that. Um, and so what do I do mean about breaking the grazing bulls? Um, I will graze stuff sometimes when it is way too tall, which is a rule that a lot of people have broken over the years. Um, but then I'm careful and I, I feed them, say, some hay that's 
that's really nice hay at the same time. So when they're eating overly mature stuff, the rules I break more often are having to do with rest period. So um, I'll give you an example. There was a field last year, pasture H, as in Hubert. All, all our pastures are lettered on one farm. They're numbered on one farm. And they're the aerospace alphabet on the third farm. Um, so this was pasture H. And pasture H only wanted to grow ragweed, like <laughs> period. It just wanted to grow ragweed. There was really no convincing it to grow anything else. You could fertilize it with organic fertilizer. You could disc it up. You could put something else in it and ragweed. So I decided, well, if that's what it wants to grow here. Then I'm just going to graze it like you should graze ragweed because I noticed that the cows really like ragweed when it's oh, like yeah. six inches tall and they really do not like ragweed <clears throat> when it is 12 to 18 inches tall. So we grazed that pasture probably, I don't know, nine or 10 times in a growing season because that ragweed kept coming back oh, and yeah. then um we put compost on it and we um the next this past year so that was last summer this past year we drilled it with a really diverse mix we we use very very diverse mixes of what some farmers would call cover crops or our forages so it's uh you know these are all things they might not all be in the same mix but it might be wheat oats cereal rye, ryegrass, triticale, um, all sorts of different kinds of clover, hairy vetch, turnips, forage radishes, I mean, forage chicory, so-called tillage radishes. They don't till, but we can talk about why we use them anyway. Um, and uh, brassicas, rape, I mean, just anything that we can get to grow in a pasture that's diverse and that provides green food for the cows, we will put out there. And this particular pasture that had the problem with the ragweed, I let the forage, This I didn't graze it from October when we planted it to June, I think it was, or May. And so I let that one crop just grow into an absolute jungle. I mean, like you couldn't even drive the four-wheeler through it because the vetch would like stop the four-wheeler. Oh, yeah. And... But we managed to take this one 10-acre pasture, we, we divided it into about 25 strips. So 10 acres divided into 25 strips or some pretty small strips. And then yes. we put, we would put probably 100 cow equivalents on there. When I say we're milking 80 cows at the moment, we're really milking like 60. But because we have all the, we have 80 mature cows in the herd, we have all the young stock, and we also have the yearling heifers in that group. So like there's a lot of animals in there and we grazed that that 10 acres in those 25 strips and we made the strips long. So that increases trampoline, right? And decreases yes. utilization. Like they're going to poop on more than and walk on more than they're going to eat. And then we did not disturb the soil in any way. We do a lot of disking, but we didn't just this plant, this particular shop. And we no-till drilled summer annuals right into it. We never had the, the, the ragweed come back. And we didn't have horse nettle in that field either because it couldn't possibly germinate during all of that time. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I mentioned that because because we plant annuals, I will I don't care about the recovery of other plants. So I'm not interested oh, okay. in like a lot of our pastures on the original side of the farm where they're numbered at AQ, as we call it. They have uh, fescue in them, toxic fescue. 
which you can make fescue less toxic without planting endophyte-free fescue. So that farm, I don't care if they overgraze. Overgrazing is defined by time, not severity. So I don't care if they overgraze, meaning they graze it once and then they graze it again 10 days later. If it works in my plan that day and they just need something to eat for a few hours, there's, there's fescue out there. If let's just say they grazed it, I'm making this up, but let's just say they grazed it on the first of the month and they grazed all of, and it's this time of year. So it's like towards winter and they've grazed all of the oats and the, the stuff in there they like, and they've left the fescue because I, let's just say had something else for them to graze and cows will always leave fescue alone if they have something better. Always. Oh, yeah. They have to be pretty hungry. Do you want to eat that dastardly plant? <laughs> and let's just say it hasn't rained for 10 days and that that other stuff hasn't grown back significantly. I might put them in there again and let them, now they're more hungry because let's just say we've run out of the rotation and I'm going to, even though it's only a 10 day rest period, I'm going to put them back on that pasture again and I'm going to let them work on that fescue now. Oh, yeah. And um, I find myself breaking all sorts of rules when it comes to um, rest periods because I'm always I'm focused on what I'm focused on in that pasture, which might be eradicating a particular plant, or it might be trying to make a particular plant come alive by exposing it or breaking back other stuff. And I found when I do, if I'm, if I'm willing to break, you have to know raising rules before you can break them, right? Like I couldn't break grazing rules if I didn't understand them. A lot of people first need to understand grazing rules and why rest periods are important and why you can't graze even if it hasn't rained on a pasture that you want to come back, even though it's been 60 days. Like you might, it's not ready to come back yet. So you, sh- you shouldn't graze it. But because I'm managing for different things, I often find myself doing very disruptive grazing patterns. And it seems that the soil really, really responds to that. And I learned from Alan Williams, um, who's one of my favorite authors on grass fed. All things grass-fed, and you can read them in Gray's Magazine as well as the Stockman Grass Farmer. Um, he talks about the the law of disruption and how important it is. So we will sometimes graze. This one drives my daughter nuts when she has to build the pastures. We'll sometimes graze in a labyrinth. Like I will actually create a labyrinth for the cows in the pasture. And you have to really understand cow behavior or you could get yourself in a mess because they could all 80 animals can get to the center of the labyrinth and like feel boxed in and then they're just going to break down the fences and have a mess. Oh yeah. Yeah. But I create little exits in the labyrinth, but the plan, but the basic plan is they still have to walk in this giant, very irregular non cow like pattern in the pasture. And so they distribute their manure very well. They're going to touch the perimeter, which they normally wouldn't do it in mass. Sometimes we graze the fields on diagonals. Um, sometimes we might let them have access to the same field for three or four days and not break it up. Um, but just always thinking about how we can disrupt that, that soil and that grass differently than we have before has really resulted in some real coming to life, I believe, in the soil. Oh, yes. One thing you, you pointed out there, you've got to understand some of the grazing rules before you go and break them so so practice and get get some of that knowledge before you go start doing the rest just like we had talked earlier you know 
You started out with dairy cows, it sounds like, very early in your journey, but dairy cows are a whole different beast than beef cattle. And if you start on beef cattle, which I think is a nice entry level on that, dairy cows are, are a whole nother level or like multiple levels above them. That's true. Yeah. Um, but I did have other animals before dairy right. cows. Yeah. I didn't have cows, but I had um, goats and sheep. And so I was at least familiar with grazing patterns and basic room and husbandry. Oh, yes. Um, before. But when the number one question we probably get is from people is like, can I buy one of your cows? And the answer is just no, you can't. Because I... I knew what I was like when I had never done this before, and I won't subject my cows to that. Oh, um, yes. I'll put them in the freezer before I do that. Yeah. Um, although we are going to be selling a very select number of cows into very specific um, envir environments over the next couple of years. And I finally figured out a way I can do it that's okay for my heart. And I don't oh. feel like I'm putting the cows in a bad situation. But I always recommend people start with two bottle steers and... And the reason I do say that is because steers, dairy steers, are so difficult to raise on grass. And if you can learn to raise a dairy steer, in this, they're difficult in the sense from an energy point of view because they don't have their hormones. And they're really not an animal that was designed to make flesh from grass because the difference, the core difference between a beef cow and a dairy cow is simply that a dairy cow uses fiber in the form of grass to make acetic acid, which makes milk. Beef cow uses fiber in the form of grass to make propionic acid, which makes flesh. And just because a, a Jersey or a Holstein steer can't make milk doesn't mean their physiology is any different. So they still make milk. It just goes nowhere yeah. in a sense. I mean, obviously they don't make milk, but they're right, not making right. flesh. And yes. so I, I've always advised people to start with two bottle steers because if you can keep them in good condition, if you can make them shiny and fat, you can handle a dairy cow. You're not going to necessarily know all the other things about having a dairy cow, like ketosis and milk fever and things that are specific to lactation, but at least you're going to understand the metabolism of the animals. And it's so much more of a high octane game than a beef cow, as you're, as you're saying, I often described it people that having a dairy cow is like having a, a race car whereas having a beef cow is like having a box car <laughs> yeah it's just you know it's a whole different animal and you better know how to drive a car before you get in that race car because you're oh yes crush. yeah wonderful conversation but uh and we haven't even covered half my things i've wrote down in talking to you but it is time we transition to our overgrazing section where we talk about something a little bit deeper, a little bit more. And I think for today, we are talking about applying carbon to soil. All right. So do you want me to answer why or how? Uh, we want both answers. It's a deep okay. dive. <laughs> so why is simple because it belongs there. And we are the ones who have taken it out. We've taken it out by excessive tillage and not covering the soil with their even if we haven't done so as consumers directly, we've done so by our food choices when we wanted cornflakes. That's what the consequence is that we've taken carbon out of the soil. And just and to so, jump in real quick right there, that's an important point that you make that's probably that's not lost on our audience like it might be some other people, but our food choices 
um, what we are buying to eat is dictating some of these actions that's happening on farms that we may not agree with. So, so that's a very good point to make there. Yeah, so we're all complicit, right? So <clears throat> right. I drove by a, a, a Nebraska feedlot once on the highway with a good friend of mine. and He said, Suzanne, don't look. And I said, I am going to look. And of course, I saw dead animals like with their legs up and bloated in the sun. And it was terrible. But I said, you know, something I did today was complicit in those animals' death. Not maybe not directly, but there's a choice that I've made as a consumer and as a human being that makes that life more likely. And I think we all have to kind of own up to that. Um, so because the carbon isn't in the soil anymore, we have to put it back. And there's some really heroic stories, and these are my mentors and my friends, and so I'm not in any way denigrating what these guys are doing, and they're mostly men, of using massive cattle herds. I'm thinking of like Ian Mitchell Innes in South Africa. Um, massive, massive cattle herds to put carbon back in the soil. In fact, Ian Mitchell Innes was so successful at this that he actually just had to sell half of his land because his land became so fertile that he couldn't buy enough cattle to keep up with all the grass he could grow. That's astounding in South Africa. Oh, yeah. So we can, people are reading these stories and reading stories of Greg Judy and Joel Salatin, and they're really great stories in White Oak Pastures in Georgia, and they're all true. You can do tremendous amounts with just cow feet, poop, and hooves. I mean, you really can in urine. But for most small stockholders, you do not have the animal impact, nor the acreage, nor the rest time that you're going to be able to make a measurable difference on your land in your lifetime with the stock you have. It's not that you can't make a difference. You're just not going to be making those kinds of differences. And you're going to be really disappointed because you're not achieving the results that you know are possible biologically. But the way that everybody can achieve those results starts with putting carbon on the soil because we all can find some carbon. There's always leaves from the neighbor. There's always wood chips from the from the local tree company. There's always some, some sort of composted carbon or uncomposted carbon you can get from your local county landfill or wherever. There's You can get corn cobs from the neighbor. I mean, there's something organic of organic matter containing carbon that you can put on that soil. You can compost it or not. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we frankly don't have the time, the equipment, or the space to compost it. So we just put it on and let it rot. Sometimes we just let it rot. Sometimes we put it on and we then apply a biological product um, that has microorganisms and all sorts of little nutrients that help break that down faster. One of my, the one we've used is from a company called Terra Biota, I think, and it's called Crop Recycle. It's really fun to watch it work. In a couple of weeks, that stuff like breaks down really dramatically and you oh, can wow. disc it in. Um, but oftentimes we just let it rot. And so this year we applied probably 250 tractor trailer loads of shredded tree mulch onto our pastures. There was people, I mean, our guys were working on that like full time and then it didn't rain for six weeks. Oh, However... It rained anyways in my life, not enough to make the forage grow radically. I was still in drought like everyone else. But the dew every night fell down those plants that were perfectly created to have little funnels for the dew. And they went into a soil that was full of carbon. And so even though that carbon hadn't broken down yet, even though it had not yet turned into soil, it was there. It was there to absorb the moisture. And all of those plants, even though it didn't rain, verdant grain the entire time 
And now that it has rained, they're really growing because that carbon was holding them together and keeping them alive. And to me, applying carbon in the soil is the most exciting thing that we do, even though it's sometimes really, really monotonous. I'll never forget the August where we rolled out a hundred bales of of rye hay that then a friend of mine was going to burn. And I was like, no, don't burn them. <laughs> yes. I paid a guy. I paid a guy to haul them. That's the thing about applying carbon. You're going to have to pay people because most of us do not have the equipment. Even though I have a big farm and we have big equipment, we still pay people to haul carbon because it's so much, but it's so worth it. And um, so we paid someone to haul the bales over. We rolled out every single one of those round bales in the pasture. The cows, to my shock, ate some of them, even though they were old and planted rotten. And the rest of it just rotted. And that pasture was never the same again. It was it was always an okay pasture after being a moonscape. So applying carbon to me is like the single most transformative thing we can do. And I would put it ahead of livestock management as the thing that most small, small stockholders can do quickly to notice a result quickly. I rotated animals on Kentucky 31 for years and didn't see much improvement. I'm not saying there was no improvement, but there wasn't major improvement. In a single season of applying carbon, there is a noticeable improvement. I I think for for instance, just not even if you if you are unable or unsure about doing that wholesale and doing a whole lot, if you take a bell of hay and roll it out there, it's amazing. You can pick right where you rolled that hay out. Oh yeah, or even I always tell people like if they have a square bale of straw in their garden, look what happened under the square bale when you left it there for two months. Oh, yes. The earthworm castings are amazing. I mean, they're just lights. That, to me, is the most exciting part of, of grass farming. Now, you've mentioned a couple of different sources of carbon. You mentioned old hay. Uh, you just mentioned straw, but also wood chips and stuff. Where do you go to find carbon to bring in? I have literally chased tree tucks down the road in shoes that weren't tied. I'm not kidding you. Like pulled over on the side of the road and start like running down the road. And like if I can catch them, like when they're turning in someplace and I'm like behind another truck, I'll like pull up and I'll chase them down. And I'll be like, hi, I'm Suzanne and I have a farm down the road and I have an easy place for you to dump. That's what they always want. They want an easy place oh. for you to dump. They want gravel. They want it to be whether it's rain or shine, muddy or not muddy, they want an easy place to dump. So that's essential. You have to give them an easy place to dump and you have to make it so that they can dump when you're not there, ideally, so mm -hmm. that they know that they can come to your place whenever they're in town, they're ever passing by, like so they don't have to pay a dump fee at the local dump. They can just dump at your place. And like you better make it so that that pile that you dumped last time, they dumped last time, is moved or whatever so that the next time they can dump again. So my... So chasing down tree companies, just cold calling tree companies, um, they are very happy to work with people, but like you cannot be fussy about it. You cannot be like, oh, you hit my mailbox. Like, oh, well, like, <laughs> yes. you know, like they're giving you a gift. And if you make it easy for them, they will want to, to be there and they will. So we always give all the guys on the tree companies Christmas gifts. So we give them oh, hams yes. and um, you know, five pounds for every person in their company gets five pounds of ground beef. They get milk. I mean, we really treat them very well. I I think it's a great thing because, like you said, they're they're running a business and they want to. That's just a hassle for them. They want it dumped and out of there. They want it easy. 
and just developing relationships with everybody you can. That's always the name of the game. You know, I don't want to say everything, but everything goes back to relationships. That's right. You never know when you're going to lose your friend, that you're going to need the friend you made yesterday. So just like never burn a bridge and always, always, always be kind to people. Yes. Yeah. I concur on that. Yes. Anything else you want to add there before we move to our famous four questions? Everything in the grass world requires patience and and a great deal of observation. So just recognizing that the things you do this year, you're not going to probably see a result on until next year. And just to have faith in it is sometimes hard because it's hard, it's hot, you're losing money, you're losing sleep, you have prickles all over you and it's not uncomfortable. But just like keeping the faith is really important. And so encourage yourself with, with other people's stories and other people's photos and and building yourself up will help get through those times when it just seems like you're like rolling out stuff on the earth for no reason. Yes, and and a real shameless plug, you know, listen to the Grazing Grass podcast to hear about others' journeys. Anyway, our famous four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question, what is your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? Sarah Flack's uh, the Art and Science of Grazing, I think, oh, yes. breaks it breaks it down really simply for people. My husband also wrote the foreword, but I, I don't, that's not why I chose that book. Those are the kind of books that I read, but when people want to, and I say that because I already know how, by the time that book came out, I already knew how to do the things in that book. I tend to read really old books or, um, yeah, I tend to read a lot of really, really old books or but for people looking at how to do this, I would yes. say that book is the simplest to understand. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Our second question, what is your favorite tool for the farm? The manure spreader, because that's what I use to spread carbon. And that's my therapy when I feel like I've had too much people time or too many phone calls or too many meetings. I love to get on the tractor and spread compost. Or oh, spread yes. anything. Yeah. It's just so satisfying. Very good. And thirdly, what would you tell someone just getting started? It's a long game. So pace yourself. Yeah, and you, you touched on that patience a little bit earlier, yes. Yeah. So true. And find friends. And you're I think the number one thing that I tell people is that your friends don't have to be ideologically aligned with you to be friends and to be helpful to you. So many people in this movement are looking to find people like them who found a farm like them. And Hubert and I's very best friends in farming do not farm like us at all. And they're conventional in every way. They think we're nuts or they did. <laughs> they're starting to think we're less nuts. Oh, yeah. But those are the guys who showed up and helped us. Those are the guys who showed me how to AI. Those are the guys oh, yeah. who showed up at nine o'clock at night when our hay baler broke and they bailed hay for us all night before a rain. Um, those are the guys who sell us hay and and we have relationships with. And, and I think those relationships, it's just so important to show honor to people, even if you don't agree with them. And I've seen so much like turning up people's nose at farmers because like, you know, they use GMOs or they, you know, 
they're farmers and they're doing the best they can with what they've got and what they know. And they still know a lot more than you about a lot of things. And you really would do well to be friends with them. And I just found the richest friendships there. And like, they're just beloved to me. It breaks my heart because most of them die of cancer, to be honest, because the way of farming is so toxic. And that part just stinks. Like I've been to way too many funerals, Um, but I'm still really glad they're my friends. Oh, yes. Yeah. Comes back to those relationships. And lastly, where can others find out more about you? Um, I probably pour most of myself into two things. We have two Instagram accounts at the moment. I'm really considering only having one. One of them is called Reverence Farms, reverence.farms. The other one's reverence underscore home. And the reverence underscore home one is where I teach, like, kind of how we do things and talk oh, about yes. natural cattle treatments, how we graze, how we um, establish pasture. And then the other resource that we've we've started doing for folks to give people a much deeper dive on individual topics is something we call the Stockholders Exchange. And you can find out about it at allreverence.com. So that's just allreverence, one word, .com. And um, there's a, a monthly membership fee. And every month we send you two one-hour videos of Hubert and I discussing a particular topic. And Hubert and I are funny because we, our husband, wife, we, we ha- our foundation is the same, but we don't agree about everything. And we have lively discussions about how we do things and why we do things. And he's an expert on some things and I'm an expert on some things. And we definitely defer to one another, but it's truly a conversation. And oh, it's weird. where we get into like the nitty gritties of what we do. We do our best to share with others. Our our mission is to teach, and um, this is our the beginning of that educational program. But we're hoping to do more and more conferences and workshops and things, so people can sign up for our newsletter on our website. And there's a, a growers newsletter you can sign up for. We're also um, starting a store where we're not just going to sell meat and dairy and stuff from the farm, but also um, products that we use. And we hope to bring that store online pretty soon too. But we're, we want to make things that are available only to us because either she's a veterinarian or we just know about certain things like little products that we use, kind of like tips and tricks and, and things that we found that work over the years and to make them available to people. And we have a, an, an open door visitor policy on the farm and we have three miles of trails. So people are oh, welcome wow. to come hike. And we have some on-farm stays that are opening up and um, we're a pretty welcoming place. So we, we encourage people to come visit and to, to meet us in the Stockholders Exchange where we, we talk a lot about dairy um, and a lot about the way we dairy and try to make some of that less of a mystery to people. Very good. We will post those links in our show notes so they're easy for our listeners to get to. Susanna, we appreciate you coming on and sharing today. Um, we could have talked a lot longer, I'm sure. Well, there's a lot of we, there's a lot of ground to cover. Grass-fed dairy is something that that's not really been around for very long. There's, it's a mystery to a lot of people, so oh, yes. that's why we have the stockholders exchanged to help people with it. But thank you so much for this podcast. It, this kind of stuff did not exist when I was first starting. It was the Stockman Grass Marmer, Gray's Magazine, and whatever books I could read about beef. I used to be the only dairy person at these grass-fed beef conferences oh, and yes. they were always like why are you here and I was like because there are no conferences for my people 
So yeah. it's 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 a growing movement. It is. Thank you for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate you. I hope you have a great day. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them. And we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.